Well, good morning. Happy second day of spring. Spring has sprung. Beautiful day out there today. So just uh, right off the bat, I'm not trying to be hip, cool pastor up here, sitting down, having a cup of coffee. That's not what's happening. I have a severely sprained ankle, uh, which I sprained saving a puppy from a burning building. That's the story that I'm going with and not playing frisbee golf. Uh, That's the story and I'm sticking to it. This is not normal for me, so I hope that you will bear with me as I used to. I'm used to walking and wandering uh, around. But uh, if you're a first-time guest with us, what we do at Providence here is we, we walk through books of the Bible. And this morning we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17. And we'll be going all the way through chapter 14 this morning. Abraham Lincoln and his business partner stood on their front porch in a little country store in Illinois. The business had failed. Lincoln was deep in debt. And he was unsure what the future held for him. He told his business partner he wouldn't mind so much if he could just do what he really wanted to do which was to study law. And he contemplated selling everything that he had so he could buy the one book that he needed, Blackstone's Commentary on English Law. As they stood there on the porch, a man and his family in a wagon pulled up. They had been out west trying to homestead out west and it just hadn't worked out for them. And so they were on their way back east and they were trying to lighten their load and they were trying to get a little bit of money and he said I have some things I'd like to sell would you be interested in this barrel and Lincoln ran his hand through his pocket and pulled out his last 50 cents handed it over to the man for the barrel he took the barrel and he put it in the corner of this little store and it sat there for days and days and weeks and weeks and finally Lincoln decided to move it to a different location as they had to be out of this building. And as he moved it, he heard something inside rattling around at the bottom. He opened up the barrel. He could see something down there. He ran his long arm down to the bottom of the barrel. He felt something solid and he grabbed it. And he realized it was a book. And he pulled it out and he could hardly believe what he read. Blackstone's commentary on English law. Lincoln later wrote, I stood there holding the book, looking towards the heavens. There came a deep impression on me that God had something for me to do. And He was showing me I had to get ready. Why this miracle otherwise? God has been getting Moses ready for what it is that he has to do for this task that he has coming for him. And this is no small undertaking, as we will see. God has chosen Moses to lead his people, but make no mistake about it. Exodus is not a book about Moses. Exodus 
is a book about the greatness of God. He has no equal. Not even the greatest nation on the planet at the time. And we named this series, The God Who Rescues. And this passage that we are looking at today bears this out. This is the reason that we named it that. This is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. This is the Exodus. But most of all, it's important for us to remember this is not just exciting history. It's not just exciting Bible history or the history of redemption. It is divine revelation from God meant for our instruction. At least that's what the Apostle Paul thought when he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul emphasizes that the whole Exodus experience happened for us. It's written down for our instruction. It teaches us about Christ. And it also teaches us how not to respond in difficult situations. And for all these reasons and more, Paul says... It's important for us to contemplate the Exodus experience. The Exodus is the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament. And what I want us to look at today are three truths about this mighty God who rescues. And so, if you have your bulletins there, number one, the God who rescues is faithful and wise. Look at chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was most near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now there are some things that we need to understand about the Exodus. Some things that we need to try to wrap our minds around. And the first thing that we need to try to wrap our minds around is just the sheer mass of humanity that we are talking about here. The sheer number of people. Exodus 12.37, from that we know there are 600,000 men. Not including women and children. And so interpreters often estimate the size of the population of Israel at the Exodus to have been between 2 million and 3 million people. That's a lot of people. I don't know what the biggest number you've ever been in, but let's just say if you've been to Nissan Stadium and you know the sheer mass of humanity that is and trying to get in and trying to get out and go through security and go to the concession stand and all these things, it's it's a lot of people. 
That's 68,000 people. So the numbers that we're talking about here are way beyond that. The U.S. Army Quartermaster General did a study on what it would take just for food, water, and to camp this many people. They would have eaten somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 tons of food a day. They would have consumed 11,000 gallons of water a day. And just to camp, just to make a campground, would have required roughly the size of Rhode Island. This is the mass of people that we're talking about. This is no small undertaking. And this, these people had basically three routes to choose from out of Egypt. Route number one was along the Mediterranean Sea, due east of Egypt. The Romans called it the Via Maris, the way of the sea. This is the most direct route, but it is dotted with Egyptian outposts and some heavily populated areas. Now, I want you to imagine this. In Metro Nashville, there are 1,959,495 people, give or take a few. In Williamson County, there are 238,412 totaling 2,197,907. Now I want you to imagine 2 million plus people roaming through our little town of Nolensville. Just imagine that. We can barely get two lanes of traffic going in Nolensville on a, at 5 o'clock through a weekday. Imagine 2 million people rolling through here rolling through your backyard, eating out of your garden, grazing their cattle in your yard as they roll through. This might cause a conflict, right? There might be some pushback. Your HOA would definitely not be happy about that. That is for sure. And so in God's wisdom, He chooses not to go that way. Route number two is the way of marsh. Uh, it's a route that crosses the uh, Sinai Peninsula, heavily, uh, heavily uh, wooded wilderness area just below the, the Bitter Lake region. And route number three is the way of shore to the north end of the Red Sea. Now this is the most difficult route, the most non-direct way. This is not the easy way, but this is God's way. God's wisdom and purpose go beyond just moving this mass of humanity from one place to another, just as it does in our own lives. You know, as I get older, I can look back at my life and see things now that I couldn't see then. I look at jobs and different opportunities that I had. Why didn't God allow this? Why didn't God allow that? And then when you start piecing things together, well, if I'd have gone this way, I would have never experienced this. If I'd have gone this way, I never would have met this person. The convenient, the most obvious way 
is not always God's way. God is wise. And God is faithful. And His ways are not our ways. And we can rest in this. And we see a picture of this in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And this is a a picture of God's faithfulness. The picture of the bones of Joseph and his coffin in front of this mass of humanity would have reminded God's people that God's Word is worth trusting. And we remember the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And God granted him favor and he rose through the ranks to prepare for Egypt for famine. And he was able to rescue his people because of his position. His way was not the easy way. But we remember what he says in Genesis 50 when he sees his brothers. He says what his brothers had meant for evil, God had meant for good. And Joseph had predicted this according to the faithfulness of God that he would be brought out of Egypt, that he would be buried in the land of promise. And so, seeing this coffin with the embalmed body, and he would have been mummified. He was in Egypt. He would have been mummified of Joseph. was a visible display to the people of God that he can be trusted. Now just as a a side note, side note of application, we as your elders pray for our congregation that you are in God's Word. That you're in God's Word daily. And as you do that, you need to remember the Bible is about God. We tend to want to write ourselves into it, but the Bible is about God. And so as you read, ask yourself, what is God doing here? Look for the character and the nature of God. Look for His promises. God keeps His promises. And so we see that God does not just leave His people. He leads His people. Look at verse 20. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God is journeying with His people. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of of fire by night. And this cloud would be with them for 40 days. 
Now, as we read this, and as I've heard people say before, you know, this a cloud would be nice, right? In our lives. That would make life a little bit easier if we had a cloud to follow around. You know, who am I supposed to marry? Oh, she's got a cloud around her. Let me go over here and marry her. What job am I supposed to take? Oh, there's a pillar of fire in front of the door. This building, that must be it. I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow that. Discerning God's will is one of the things that we as Christians just struggle with the most. But the God that is faithful and wise is still leading us today. We have something even better than a cloud or a fire. We have the the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Paul in Colossians says, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And as a believer, we are never apart from God's presence. The question is, do we, are we sensitive to it? Do we walk by the Spirit or do we walk by the flesh? As Paul warns us. God is faithful. God is wise. Which leads us to the second truth. Number two in your notes. God who rescues, establishes His glory. The story of Exodus, the story of redemption, is all about the revelation of God's glory. God is passionate about His glory. As He should be. And so God leads them to this place. He leads them to this place against the Red Sea where they have nowhere else to go. Not only did God choose the longest and most difficult route, He chooses the route that would allow His glory to be displayed for the world. For Pharaoh, for the Egyptian army, for the people of Israel, for the world to see. Moving into chapter 14, look at verse 4 with me. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. He has the purpose of displaying His glory. The purpose of revealing Himself to be the Lord. The most, even the most powerful nation in the world. The most powerful army in the world is but a flea compared to the God of the universe. Look at verses 5 through 8. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people 
And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. And so he made ready his chariots and he took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So Pharaoh thinks that they have made, that Moses has made a tactical error by leading his people here. But what he is doing is fulfilling the plan of God. Now you can imagine this smug kind of arrogance that he has as he's racing his chariots, this powerful army as he's racing them towards the people of Israel. He's rolling in with this army that would have been the best of the best. Egypt has outposts all over, but these would have been the ones that were closest to Pharaoh, the most well-trained, the most provided for. But he's only fulfilling the plan that God Himself has set into motion. And you can imagine the people seeing this, and you can imagine them being afraid. I mean, here they are. This place offers no way out. Look at verse 11. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And this is what fear does for us. It produces doubt. It produces unbelief. Moses, did you just bring us out here in the wilderness to die? Did you bring us out here in the wilderness because there's no graves in Egypt? Now, in case you didn't pick up on this, this is sarcasm. I understand this because sarcasm is my spiritual gift. But if you know anything about Egypt, this graves to Egypt are like cowboy hats to Nashville. They are everywhere. Egypt is grave central. It is grave depot. If you wanted a grave, Egypt was where to have one. This is not the first time that the Israelites... Turn on Moses, nor will it be the last. But all they can think is what Pharaoh was going to do to them. But then again, that was all they had ever known. What Pharaoh was going to do to them. This is all they had known for 400 years. 
more than 400 years. They didn't know how to hope. And so Moses drops this truth on them in verse 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Just stand there. Be quiet. And watch. Watch what God is about to do. The waiting is over. The time for redemption is now. Now you have to imagine, this is strange for, a strange message for them as well. For a people that have only ever known slavery. They were always being told to do something. Do this. Do that. And now, they're being told to do nothing. Just stand there. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 15 is a a bit strange. And most of the commentaries that I read believe that what God is saying here is, okay, Moses, stop praying. It's time for action. And so tell the people to go forward. Lift your, st- lift your staff. Stretch your hand out over the sea and divide it. And there's going to be no doubt that this is all God. Look at verse 19. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. And so there was a cloud, now called an angel, are the the cloud and the, the angel the same. And there's lots of debate over that. Short answer is, don't know. Lots of indecision in there. But whatever the case was, they, they were before. They were going before. And now this cloud and this pillar are behind and protecting the people from the army. And this is a glorious picture of God's protection. Right at the moment of greatest need, He is planting Himself right between you and the enemy of your soul. And in verse 21, Moses holds out 
his hand. And this wind blows from the east and parts the waters and it dries the ground and the people crossed on dry ground, a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left. That U.S. Army Quartermaster General study talked about this portion of this story as well and about how the path would have had to have been massive. And we're not talking a grocery store aisle here. We're talking massive path. If it was a grocery store aisle, for that amount of people to cross, for three million people to cross, it would have created a line 800 miles long and required 35 days to cross. And so, in order for the Egyptians to cross in a night, it meant that they had to cross some 5,000 at a time. Which would have meant that they needed a space three miles wide. That's a wall of water. I want you to imagine that. How that looked. What it must have been like going through that. This is a God-sized miracle. This word for wall that's used here is used in other places in the Old Testament to describe the walls of cities, but I don't even think that really is an adequate description of it. And this is one of those stories in the Bible that is a barrier of belief for some people. They just can't imagine this could happen. This, this couldn't really happen. And if you watch the History Channel around Easter, you get all these you know, stories, uh, all these experts that are telling you what, what actually happened, and they'll say things like, well, it was a shallow space, and they crossed this salt marsh. That's, that's, that's what they did. Now, we know that is not the case. We know that our God is big enough mighty enough to do this. But even if that was the case, that would still be a miracle, right? God drowning the most powerful army in the world in two feet of water (laughs) is a pretty big miracle. So either way you go. But somewhere between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 6 a.m., the Lord looks down from this pillar cloud, pillar of fire and he says I'm going to deal with the Egyptians and he confuses them and we don't know exactly how whether the the wheels fell off or they got bogged down somehow not sure exactly exactly how but whatever the case they were not able to to drive their chariots and then we see God save his people Number three in your, in your notes. The God who rescues is mighty to save. Look at verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea 
the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. Verse 30 and 31 are kind of a a summary of what's happened here, but a picture, an amazing picture. Judgment, mercy, wrath, salvation, all pictured here. Imagine seeing the bodies of these soldiers, these mighty soldiers washed up on the shore that just a short time ago you thought were going to destroy you. Now washed up on the shore. And passing through the water, they are saved. Does that sound familiar? This is a picture. Picture of baptism. Picture of the gospel. And so, we should see our story in the Exodus. This story is our story. We are saved from bondage. We are saved from slavery. Slavery to our sin. In Christ, we are free from condemnation. From the condemnation of sin and death. But just like the Israelites, we still want to go back. And we'll see this as we go forward this idea that they were better off as slaves. Even to the point later on where they'll start making up stories about how great it was, about how they had pots of meat and all this stuff when they were slaves. But we do the same thing. Every day we have to fight to put sin to death. And remember, we were not better as slaves. This story is our story because it is only by grace we are saved. Only by grace we are saved. God kills the enemy that we cannot kill. He provides the way that we cannot provide. None of the children of Israel could ever have said that they did something in order to earn their deliverance. To get their own deliverance through the Red Sea. They couldn't say that and neither can we. We are the same. Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved. It is not what we do, but what Jesus did. In the moment we believe, we have crossed over from death to life. Salvation is simply, it's simply what we do with Jesus. Do I believe that He is who He says He is? The Messiah. Because if He is who He says He is, then He is worthy of my life's devotion. Do I believe that He lived a perfect, sinless life? Do I believe that He bore my sin on the cross and paid the debt that I couldn't pay? Do I believe that He rose from the grave on the third day, defeating sin and death? Because if these things are true, then He is who He says He is. And as Tim Keller says, if He is who He says He is, then I need to believe what He says and devote my life to Him. Do you believe that Jesus is enough? This story is our story because of Jesus. The better Moses. Moses was a mediator between the Israelites and God. God displayed His power and judgment through Moses. But in Christ, we have the better Moses. Ours doesn't just act on behalf of God. He is God. And some of you need to look to this Savior today. You need to look to Him today for the first time. Bow before Him and say, I believe that Christ and Christ alone rescues sinners like me from the bondage of sin and death. Christ is calling. Like Moses said to the Israelites, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work out for you today. Today. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, we thank You As we look at this story, as we as we see ourselves in the story, as we see if we are in Christ, those of us who are in Christ, that we you made a way when there was no way. And Father, we are thankful. And for some in this room, there hasn't been a crossing from death to life. 
And Father, we pray that today is the day. That we see the salvation of the Lord. Draw people unto Yourself today. And Lord, help us to, to worship You in spirit and truth as we get ready to sing, Lord, I need You. Lord, I need You. Every hour, I need You. My one defense. My righteousness. Let us sing that as a song of prayer and a song of praise today. We thank you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.